Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. On this week's episode of the podcast, Joey sat down with our environmental reporter, Daniel Rothberg, to talk about his story on the Anaconda copper mine outside Yarrington, Nevada, and how it's contaminated the surrounding groundwater. After that, editor John Ralston and I spoke with Congresswoman Susie Lee about her push for a change in federal coronavirus relief rules that ultimately benefited her husband's company. At the end of the show, Joey talks with reporter Megan Messerly about where we are with the coronavirus in Nevada. But before we hear from our guests on the show today, here are a few COVID-19 numbers. As of the time of recording this podcast on Friday, July 10th, the number of confirmed cases of COVID-19 in Nevada exceed 25,000, and 574 people have died. After trending downward for weeks, reported hospitalizations have continued to increase since the end of June. Today, just over 300 Nevadans are currently hospitalized with either a confirmed or suspected case of coronavirus. The state's test positivity rate, that's the number of positives as a percentage of people tested, has also generally continued to climb, following a spike in cases in late June. Today, the daily positivity rate fell to 9.2%, while the cumulative rate hovered around 7.5%. For more on the coronavirus, including our comprehensive data page, head to thenevadaindependent.com. All right, so I'm here with our environmental reporter, Daniel Rothberg. And Daniel, you have been working on this uh, story about the Anaconda Mine outside of Yarrington, Nevada for a while now. There's been a lot of reporting on it. You've already done a couple stories on it. Um, and your most recent one, can you just kind of explain to me what you found in your story? Yeah, so my reporting and my story cent- centers around groundwater contamination, at least a portion of which originated because mining in the you know 1950s to 1970s around that time frame contaminants like uranium and arsenic and sulfate were allowed to seep into the groundwater table and they traveled under, out outside of the mine and underneath agricultural fields and into domestic wells so now what you have is this large area of contamination outside of the mine that is not sort of disturbed land that is land that is being used for agriculture and being used for domestic wells and drinking water. Arco is responsible for cleaning up the mine. That's the oil company, Arco. They're owned by BP. They purchased the company that used to run the mine site, and that makes them responsible for cleaning up all of the contamination associated with the mine. What I found in my story was that when environmental regulators were assessing the scope of the contamination and the oversight was under the US EPA, there was a large zone of contamination thought to be influenced by the mine. In the past two years, since state regulators have taken over the cleanup of the mine site, the zone of mine influence contamination has shrunk significantly making the company less responsible or responsible for a much smaller amount of contamination and raising serious questions about how extensive and how costly the cleanup is actually going to be. Okay. And so this, why why does this study matter that, that the state did? The state's approval of the company's argument that the contamination 
is significantly smaller than it was when it was modeled under the EPA is extremely significant for whether or not the zone of contamination under these agricultural fields and affecting domestic wells and underneath people's homes will be cleaned up. This study will be incorporated into sort of the next step in the process, which is selecting a remedy for how to clean up the mine, the mine contamination, if at all. Because what they could do is just let this plume naturally attenuate. They say that the solution to pollution is dilution, and they could opt to just let it attenuate. But that would mean contamination in the water for, for a long time. So we've got this study done by the state. You know, it was handed over from federal to the state level. Why did the state approve this study in the first place then? What happened was that once the state took oversight of the mine from the EPA, the company began submitting new science, these two additional technical memos that reanalyzed the data, much of the data that had already been collected and started mounting a case that rather than the contamination being the result of, you know, discharges of uranium and arsenic and sulfate from the mine, the contamination was a result of naturally occurring mineralization and mobilization of uranium from agricultural practices. So basically, the company, Arco, began submitting this data to the state, mounting a case that sort of shifted the responsibility of the contamination to these other sources and saying, hey, we're responsible for a much smaller amount of this contamination. What that means, translating that, what that means is that they're also responsible for a much smaller portion of the cleanup. And the big question the whole time was, you know, will the state hold the company accountable for cleaning up the contamination to the same extent that the EPA would hold the company accountable? So, you know, what, what's in it for this company then, right? Like, if they're the ones submitting these studies that the state is now following? Well, I think I, 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 think I sort of answered that a little bit. But, you know, what's in it for the company is that they they could see they're responsible for a much smaller area of contamination. It could save them potentially a lot of money and a lot of time if they are, they are not required to clean up you know, as much contamination from groundwater. Groundwater contamination is very difficult to clean up, and there, there are different ways. As I mentioned, you know, one approach is to sort of let it naturally dissipate. Another approach is a lot more intensive. It requires pumping and to pump, you know, a basic simple analysis from the, the EPA's modeling is that to pump all of the contamination and treat it as it was modeled under the EPA would take upwards of 200 years. So we're, we're looking at, a, you're looking at a potentially huge investment, a really costly, significant thing. So that's what's in it for the company. So how much contamination are we talking about then? We're talking about a significant amount of contaminated water. When the mine influence contamination was modeled by the EPA, which granted the EPA would admit this as well, they use a more conservative or they use a conservative model approach that encompasses all potential contamination. 
That said, when it was modeled under the EPA, it was thought to be about, you know, I, I think more than 350,000 acre feet. To give you a sense, forget the word acre feet, that's a very technical water jargon unit, but Las Vegas is entitled to take 300,000 acre feet of water off the Colorado River every year. So we're talking about more water than a major metropolitan area is allowed to take every year. That's a significant amount of contaminated water. And, you know, the state has a responsibility here. You know, water in the state of Nevada belongs to all of the people in the state of Nevada. That's, a, you know, a line a lot of people use, but, but it's true. And it's, it's meant to be protected for its beneficial uses, which include everything from agriculture to municipal to domestic use. And so, you know, it really raises a question of who is responsible. Let's bracket the technical memos that I mentioned, the new science that the company presented, like even if they are not, even if they are not responsible for the area that I just mentioned, that huge area of contamination, even if they're not responsible, it raises questions about who is and what's the state's role in ensuring that the, the water is cleaned up. What we haven't talked about yet is that this aquifer is also shared by a federally recognized tribe, the Yarrington Paiute tribe, and that tribe is a sovereign nation. They have rights to water. They have pr protected rights to water. And I think there are a lot of questions about, you know, whether or not their rights are going to be protected in this process. And, you know, as I discussed in my story, they raised some, some very vehement and strenuously objected to some of the, the process that the state was taking and the new sort of technical memos that the state was accepting in their comments, which I have, you know, which I requested and I have included in my story and you could read online. All right. Well, I, I think, I think we'll leave it there, but Daniel, thank you so much for doing all this reporting and I'm sure we'll hear more coming out of Yarrington in the, in the copper mine. Uh, soon. Thanks. Back in June, a story published by the Daily Beast's Lachlan Markey found that the casino company run by Dan Lee, husband to Democratic Congresswoman Susie Lee, had received $5.6 million in federal loans through the Paycheck Protection Program. That was the sweeping coronavirus relief package passed by Congress back in March. But that money only came after Lee, alongside the rest of Nevada's congressional delegation, spent weeks lobbying the Small Business Administration to change a rule barring gaming companies from receiving federal assistance. Now, for the first time since that story published, Susie Lee sat down for an interview with me and Nevada Independent Editor John Ralston. We'll play just a portion of that interview here, but for the full context and more quotes from the Congresswoman, you can read my story on the NevadaIndependent.com. Naturally, I think we should start with everything that's been discussed over your involvement um, with the, the policy change at the SBA regarding PPP loans for small casino businesses. So, Knowing what we know now, specifically, uh, when and to what extent were you aware of Full House's plans to apply for a PPP loan? 
yeah. So listen, I mean, I think that uh, you have to go back to what we were dealing with at that time, which is a complete shutdown of our economy and the fact that a bureaucrat in Washington used a 20-year-old guidance to basically cut out a whole segment of the industry. Um, and so at that time, it was, you know, doing my job, but basically along with our bipartisan delegation, including bipartisan members across the country who have gaming interests in their states as well. Uh, at the time, uh, there was no, I had no knowledge. And again, I was not involved in Full House's decision to apply. I wasn't involved in the SBA deciding to award the loan. And it will be up to the oversight committee that's been set up to over, you know, look at them as well as every other company that's received the loan. Uh, the gaming, the repeal of the gaming um, uh, exclusion came down around the end of April. Uh, at that time, uh, given that my husband informed me that they were uh, looking into it as, as well as every other form of capital, every other option that they had. Uh, and then I didn't know what they were doing until on May 8th, he informed me that in fact, they were going to apply. Jacob, well, let me just jump in here. Cause I, I want to get, I want to get the timeline, uh, absolutely straight here. Okay. Uh, the governor shut down the state, uh, in the third week of March, I, I believe it was March 19th or so. And so everyone knew the devastation uh, was coming, uh, including you uh, and, and including your, your husband. Are you saying that between March 19th, if I have the date right, it might have been the 18th, and April 7th, when you wrote that letter uh, to, to the SBA, that you and your husband never talked about the devastation that Full House was facing or that, that he might have to get a loan to keep going? You never had that conversation? Well, we didn't. First of all, John, no one knew what was in the CARES Act at that time. Uh, and, you know, along with many business owners across the state, I talked about what the economic devastation would be. So, yes, we talked about what the economic devastation would be. Did we talk about specifics? No, we did not. So uh, and jump in again, Jacob, whenever you want, if I miss anything. So you write that when you wrote the letter on April 7th to, to the SBA and everyone here, I, I, I thought that it was crazy that the SBA didn't didn't include uh, gaming gaming companies. Uh, that, that there was an outcry that was already going on at that time. Are you saying that you didn't say, Dan, I'm going to write a letter, and he said, yeah, no. yeah, that's a great idea, or Dan didn't say, Susie, you should write. I did uh, this not letter. consult. Listen, John, I did not. I don't consult with my husband on doing my job. He doesn't consult with me on doing his job. Uh, this was a crisis again. Remember, the, uh, the SBA PPP program has now affected 42,000 uh, businesses, 525,000 jobs were saved. Um, I joined, this was a bipartisan letter, the American Gaming Association uh, pushed for it as well. So this was really about, again, the intent of the program was to save paychecks of American businesses that were forced to shut down to protect public health. And all of a sudden, the one segment of the economy, which happens to be the major segment of our economy, gets cut out of it through some bureaucrat in Washington at the SBA. So absolutely, I didn't have to consult with anyone on that. I was doing my job to protect 
jobs in Nevada and protect businesses in Nevada. And I didn't, I, I mean, to me, it was a no brainer. It was doing my job, which is uh, what I do again. Well, considering your personal financial stake in the company, do you think that the, the push to change the SBA rules, not just from the delegation, but from you specifically, represented a conflict of interest? Absolutely. I don't believe it was a conflict of interest at all. Again, they, you know, this was an economy that I am, I represent the state of Nevada. There, every business was shut down except essential businesses. You know, 37.5% of our state's revenue, which is why our state's meeting right now, comes from gaming. And that segment of the economy was completely shut out. And so what was driving me at that time was my advocacy and doing my job for businesses and workers in Nevada. So to that point, you at, at no point did There's you think- There's no conflict of interest. There's no conflict of interest. So understanding that, just to make sure there at no point you considered recusing yourself from, from making this push or anything like that. I, you know what? I advocated on behalf of, I, I, first of all, to me, this is a complete uh, attack by the Republican Party. I advocated for, I did my job. I mean, my job as a member of Congress is to make sure that workers and businesses in my state uh, survive. And again, I'll remind you, 525,000 workers are now working. 42,000 businesses have now received this loan in Nevada. And by the way, before the, the exclusion was lifted, we were ranking near the bottom of states that were accessing this loan. So it was incumbent upon me to do my job and advocate for businesses in our state. And by the way, my phone was ringing off the hook. And then I'll just say this. Had I not advocated, I'd be getting attacked right now for not doing my job. So let's let, let's take the Republicans out of this. I don't care what they're saying. The, the, on either <laughs> side, these always have familiar trajectories. There, there, there's there's you know there's chum in the water, and so the sharks are going to be after you. Fine, I don't care about that. But what I do care about is getting the facts straight. So let's make sure we have all the facts here. And this goes directly to the issue of the conflict of interest that you say you don't have and, and Jacob's question about whether you thought maybe you should recuse yourself. Of course, as a congresswoman, you should be advocating on behalf of your state and on the industry that is getting crippled uh, by this. But as Jacob pointed out, if the SBA were to change the rules that you were advocating for, that would potentially and likely benefit your family, not just your husband's well, company. Well, listen, Don, at the time, I did not know that. At the time, I did not know that. You got to remember, know the did not know I did what? not know what I was not involved in Full House's decision making. I did. First of all, there were many things that affected gaming companies in Nevada in the CARES Act. Many companies were struggling. Again, the rules were changing. You had Main Street lending, you had, which by the way, is still not set up. So there were, the rules were changing. We were literally assembling the plane as we were flying it. And so there was, I was not, I did not know what Full House was going to do. And I wasn't involved in their decision-making. I didn't influence them to do it. I wasn't consulted by them. I, you know, and so that's what drove me to do what I did my job. Can you, can you pinpoint for sure uh, I mean, everyone knows, okay, I assume you're not involved in, in, in your husband's company, just like he's not involved in, in, in your job, like, like, like most couples. But 
Can you pinpoint the exact moment in which he said, Susie, I'm going to apply for one of these? Was it right after you wrote? No, this is, yeah, I can tell you what happened. We, the gaming exclusion was lifted. At that time, Dan said, well, we never were looking into this, but I guess we'll take a look and see. And that was on right after at the end of April when it happened. And at that point, he and his company looked at that as well as other options, I imagine. I don't know. Like I said, I don't know the inner workings of him and his board and what they did. And so that after the gaming exclusion was lifted, he said, you know, we're obviously I'm going to have to look into this. And that's what they did. I didn't know what they were doing until on May 8th, he informed me that in fact, they have decided he met with his board and they decided to go ahead and pursue applying for the loan. Jacob, I'm gonna let you jump in in one second. I said one other question. Maybe it would be worthwhile for you to tell us after you were elected, if you did set up some kind of firewall with 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 your husband about his company, because you would, might be making decisions. Were, were those discussions ever had? Have you had a general rule uh, with him that, that he doesn't discuss his business or, or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, yes, we have a general rule that we do not influence each other's business decisions and work. So I have a quick question about transparency on this, and, and it goes um, beyond just your situation. But generally speaking, Congress, um, I mean, you, you've you pushed for more transparent measures when it comes to the distribution. of Yeah, these. by the way, yes, I co-sponsored transparency bills. I have been more, you know, I've been out there making, advocating to make sure that we know. Listen, this is taxpayer money. Taxpayers need to know who got these loans and what they're using what they're using them for and i full house needs to be held to the same transparency that every co- uh, company in this country who receive those loans should be held to well to that effect then uh, uh if full house got these loans in may and uh, we didn't find out about these loans uh, uh as far as they related to you until june uh why was it that the the press had to report on this first through the daily you know, report? It, it was publicly revealed on may 13th Right. And no. they received that loan. Again, my husband and I have, we have re- met every transparency requirement. I fill out the personal financial disclosures. I fill out the monthly statements uh, and my change. I'm not hiding anything. Uh, and then also, you know, he filled out and, and recorded uh, the loan as soon as he was required to do. And by the way, I'll remind you again, and I hit John, sorry, but the fact is, is that this is a Republican uh, generated attack. And I only question is what are they hiding from their own candidate? Because we have yet to see a PFD on behalf of Dan Rodheimer, who by the way, is drawing salaries from companies that we don't know who his clients are, et cetera. So, you know, I turn the, pages back to them and say, let's focus on your candidate in transparency, because I've been nothing but transparent on this. That was just a portion of our interview this week with Congresswoman Susie Lee. But if you want the full thing, be sure to head to the NevadaIndependent.com. All right, and so we are here with uh, Megan Messerly, our our resident COVID nineteen uh, 
expert, I would say. <laughs> and uh, you've been keeping track of all of the numbers, ups and downs and all arounds. So where are we at right now with, with the numbers and stuff? Right. So the numbers that we've been keeping an eye on, so, so positive cases are, are going up and people have probably, you know, if they've heard anything, they've, they've heard that, that that's happening here in Nevada. Um, it's happening in a lot of states across the nation. The hard part with looking at the number of raw cases is that there are a couple different reasons cases could be going up, right? If you remember at the beginning of the pandemic, it was really only the sickest of the sick folks and our elderly folks who we were concerned about, our folks with underlying conditions. Those were the people who were getting tested. If everyone sort of remembers, you're told if you're young and healthy and you think you have COVID, you know, just try to stay home and, and write it out and you really weren't able to get testing. So um, we have expanded testing in Nevada. Other states have as well. So with a ramp up in testing, it means we are testing younger people who are you know, healthier and in general, better able to fight the virus. So a lot of people um, like to chalk up the increases you know, just, just to that increase in testing and certainly testing is a part of it. Um, but that's also why we look at the, test, the state's test positivity rate. Essentially, that's, uh, that term just means we're looking at the number of new positives that are identified each day or in total compared to uh, the number of new tests that come back. So you're trying to figure out, okay, so 600 people were positive and we did 9,000 tests. So that's a pretty small number of positives we're finding versus, you know, if you find 1,000 positives and you're doing 2,000 tests, that's 50%. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we're, we've gotten nowhere near 50%. But just to give you an example of, of why we look at that number. And so, you know, looking at the test positivity rate here, it was going up. It's, it's still up from where it was in, in May, even mid-May, mid um, end of May, as we were just beginning to reopen and really ramp testing on pretty low in our test positivity rate at that point, our daily test positivity rate. And so that number started to go back up toward the end of June and beginning of July. In the last couple of days specifically, it's, it's gone down a little, a little bit. It's not quite as high as it was, but it's still higher than it was when we were sort of ramping up testing and, and reopening was still really just beginning. So that's a number that we're keeping an eye on just because that sort of gives us a better indicator of, okay, is it just the fact that we're testing more people or um, is there actually more community spread of this virus happening or more people getting infected? So, you know, we have seen, I think, a pretty significant spike in cases. People are kind of, you know, I think people were getting very comfortable with the fact that like, oh, COVID's going away. And then all of a sudden we had the hand of these spike. And I think everyone was much more concerned. There's been talk about reclosing states and you've seen that in California and stuff. You know, what's the governor's response been to this kind of this spike? Yeah, so my colleague Riley interviewed, you know, the governor yesterday and, and asked him a little bit about this, you know, is there a specific number that we're looking at that would trigger a, a rollback? And, you know, he didn't put a number on it. But a lot of the concern, I think, is with some of these places where we haven't seen a lot of compliance, like one of the big issues in Las Vegas has been water, water parks, you know, it's very hot, people want to go and cool down, one can understand that, but they have not seen a lot of mass compliance at water parks. And then concern here, and we've seen this in other states as well, is with bars, right, because you have an indoor space, obviously you could have outdoor bars, but you know, an indoor space where it's a lot of people, theoretically capacity is supposed to be limited, but people are still congregating, you know, you're taking your masks off to drink and that sort of a thing. So there's been movement in other states to close bars, um, to close indoor dining as well, just have outdoor dining. And to see, these are some of the sort of baby steps that states are taking to sort of walk back reopening without completely going back into their phase one or whatever, you know, their equivalent 
was. So we don't know exactly what that's going to look like and what the, what the metric is for that or at what point that would be triggered. One of the numbers that the governor is looking at in all of this is the number of hospitalizations. And we're now over 900 hospitalizations uh, because of confirmed or suspected COVID uh, in Nevada, 935 today. And that's far higher than it was at the highest point during the peak in April when it was um, in the 700s. So we've gotten much higher. So the concern sort of starts to become if you see um, hospitalizations going up and up, and at what point do we start nearing capacity, we have to start tapping into our hospital surge capacity. I don't think I need to get to that point. So it's just a question of, okay, if we are going to take steps to walk back, you know, some of the reopening measures, what is that going to be? And then when are we going to do it? And, and I don't think we really have a solid answer on either one of those questions right now. And then um, I guess just to kind of close out, what are some numbers that maybe people should be paying more attention to that maybe they're not looking at? Like, is it, is it recoveries and kind of the, the distance between new cases and recoveries? Or, or what, are, what, are, what are things that people should be paying attention to? Sure. I mean, re- recoveries are an important number, you know, to look at. People, you know, get the virus. Obviously, it's, it's a serious illness. And we have had a lot of folks get hospitalized, a lot of folks who, who have died. But obviously, there are folks who have recovered from this virus. So that, that is a number that we are tracking. Actually, if you look at our coronavirus data page, which updates multiple times a day, though, you can see that we sort of had this thin thin margin, you, you can sort of see the active cases compared to recoveries. And it was kind of this little flat line. And then you can see in the last um, couple of weeks, that sort of active cases chunk has has grown a lot as you know, we've had new cases get reported. And obviously, those folks haven't recovered yet. Uh, so that's something we're obviously keeping an eye on. Another really important thing is just keeping an eye on the counties. I like to keep an eye to see how you know, each county is doing. You know, hospital capacity-wise, Clark County is doing a little bit worse than Washoe County. The rurals are, are doing better in general. But I, I will note that a lot of that has to do with the fact that rural counties will transfer their patients to either of the urban counties if there are serious COVID complications, just because not all of the rural hospitals have the ability to treat the complicated cases of covid Mm -hmm. But it's really important to see sort of what the situation is looking like um, across Nevada. For instance, Humboldt County was an early, you know, hotspot for coronavirus. It had the most cases per capita. Since then, that number started to go down. Last time I checked, Clark County was, was the leader. And it's actually Lander County now instead of Humboldt County has, has more cases per capita. So I'm always just keeping an eye to see, you know, are there pockets of cases that are popping up and, and where are they popping up? And then is there a reason we can figure out sort of why, why that's happening? All right, cool. Well, keep an eye out on those cases and we can always make sure to check the, uh, the Nevada Independent Coronavirus data page that you keep diligently updating every day and to get all the latest information. So Megan, thank you so much for all of the work you're doing on that. And uh, thanks for chatting with me today. Of course. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. And thanks to Representative Susie Lee, reporters Daniel Rothberg and Megan Messerly, and editor John Ralston for being on the show this week. If you like what you've heard, you can find us on our website or Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever else you like to listen to podcasts. Make sure to leave us a rating and review while you're there. And of course, if you have comments, criticism, praise, or want to suggest a podcast segment, you can email us at jacob at thenvindy.com or joey at thenvindy.com. People with Bodies wrote our original theme song, and you can find more of their music on Spotify or Bandcamp. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis, and we'll talk to you next week.